The Mystical Underground and Rob McGregor present an audio production of Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings. Seventeen, under pressure. Magnus Voller paced around the ballroom, sipping from a glass of wine, sampling trays of delicacies offered by fawning servants, and partook in conversation about the state of world affairs. Everyone wanted to know the German point of view. He tried his best not to sound arrogant or condescending to the representatives of weaker nations, but his mind was on finding the shepherd that Kingston had written about in his notes and moving on to take possession of the staff of Moses. The Nazis, after all, were the people of destiny and accumulating biblical power objects was their rightful mission. The quest for world dominance was as much a mystical journey as combat and physical conquest. It all began with the Thule Society, originally study group for Germanic antiquity. Fuller's father, Rudolf, an occultist, had been a founder. The Thule Society was the organization that sponsored the German Workers' Party, which Hitler transformed into the Nazi Party. An elderly man with a white fringe, bald pate, approached Wohler, disrupting his train of thought. I am director of the Rosicrucians of Turkey, and I would be very interested in talking to you about our philosophy and its influence on the Third Reich. You see, our emphasis on synthesizing the philosophies of many groups so that the adept can maintain maximum control and dominion over. Yeah, yeah, an interesting subject, but not one I wish to discuss at the moment. Muller turned away and walked off, his gaze sweeping the ballroom for a sign of his nemesis. Indiana Jones had managed to disrupt the interrogation of the curator and escaped with him. For the moment, that left Voller with Kingston's vague commentary. His notes revealed that the shepherd, whatever it was, would lead to the staff. It was located in this palace in a chamber that was under pressure. Did that mean it was under heavy guard or what? He cursed Kingston for his vagueness and Jones for disrupting his plans. His men, all trained Gestapo agents, were furious and would show no, no mercy when they captured him. Discretion was not their strong suit, especially after they'd been embarrassed. But maybe it was time to change his strategy, he thought, as he spotted one of his men moving through the crowd. He motioned to him. Captain Faust, what do you report? Bad news, Air Doctor. Wolf is dead in the bell tower, an accident with the bell. You mean Jones killed him? 
Fuller struggled to control his voice. He smiled and nodded at an Italian diplomat's wife as she walked past. The barrel-chested Nazi ran a finger along a deep scar on his cheek. It appeared so. We are in pursuit. It won't be long before he is captured and eliminated. No, don't capture or kill him. What are you saying, Air Doctor? Let the rambunctious archaeologist locate the shepherd, then take it from him. He has a way of eluding us. What if he escapes with it? He won't. Not as long as I've got control of something he wants. Maggie O'Malley. A good plan, except there he is now, here in the ballroom, no doubt searching for her. Very well, carry on. He would make his deal right now. Jones is a romantic, hopelessly so, and wouldn't desert her, not even if it meant losing the shepherd. Fuller felt a piercing gaze from afar and spotted Jones across the room, staring at him, moving toward him. Fuller smiled, brightened. Yeah, yeah, just what I want, he thought. Come, Jones, come. Maggie stood on a stone platform, her back pressed to a tall column. Her wrists were bound tightly by a rope that wrapped around the column. She was in the depth of the palace in a watery realm of stone columns rising to a high ceiling. The ballroom was right above her and she could hear strains of the music filtering down a nearby staircase. At the base of the stairs, a few feet away, an armed guard stood silently watching her. She'd given up trying to talk to him. He either didn't speak English or was ordered not to say anything to her. She heard footsteps coming down the stairs. Now what? She expected to see Voller coming to interrogate her, or whatever he had in mind. But it was another guard replacing his silent companion. Maggie craned her head and saw that this Gestapo agent was young, probably in his early 20s. I hope you'll talk to me, she said, after the departing guard footsteps had receded. I'm not supposed to talk to you, but we are alone and I would like to practice my English. Good, I've spoken it all my life. I'm from Ireland. Yes, good evening. Same to you. Why do you want to improve your English? Because I am part of a group who will live in England after we take the country. How nice. This was going well, she thought. A real fun conversation. But maybe he would loosen the binds on her wrists if she chatted with him a while. She would take advantage of that moment and send the young Nazi into the water. She would escape, find Indy, and tell him that she'd figured it out. She knew where the shepherd's chamber was. If anyone at the ball was aware of the confrontations in the museum and elsewhere in the palace, Indy couldn't tell. The band played. The partygoers danced and chatted, drank and ate. No sign of Maggie. His feeling that something terrible had happened to her deepened. But he didn't have any idea what he could do about it. Not yet, anyway. He spotted Voller talking to a uniform, no doubt one of his own. He headed directly for the German, but bumped into a server with a tray of food, nearly knocking it over. He apologized and worked his way around the man when a, an attractive raven-haired woman reached for his arm. You're an American. 
I heard your accent. How nice that you're here. I li lived in New York for six years during the roaring 20s, as they say. Must have been interesting. And he smiled and tried to move on. But the woman wasn't finished yet. Have you taken our tour of the palace yet? I'm in charge of public relations. I haven't taken the official tour yet. Then come back tomorrow. It's a very interesting palace. I can take you places most people never see. Oh, really? Can you take me to the chamber of the shepherd? She frowned. That is very odd. I gave a tour earlier today to a party of Germans, and they asked that very question. She leaned forward, whispered, very rude men, brutes, if you ask me. Sorry to hear that. What did you tell them? I've never heard of that chamber. I thought maybe they were confusing the Sultan's palace with another one. But they insisted it was here and demanded to see the museum curator. I told them he wouldn't be here until this evening. Now Indy leaned forward and spoke in a conspiratorial tone. Were you telling them the truth about the chamber? Most definitely. I've been in every corner of the palace, even into the cisterns below the palace. An interesting place, but not on my regular tour. It's the ancient water source, Springfed. Springfed? The spring of life. Where is it? Oh, it's right below us. She touched his arm. Before you go, let me give you something, a token of welcome from the Turkish people. Oh, that, that's quite all right. No, I insist. She materialized a bulky handbag and reached inside. I didn't give one of these to those rude Nazis today. That's what they were, you know. Here it is. She handed him a small hand-woven rug. Every design has a different meaning. The weaver communicates in the language of motif, a way of reaching out to God and man. Indy remembered that he was supposed to stay alert for clues. And this definitely sounded like one. That's interesting. What does this one say? She ran her fingers over the pattern. This is the dragon print. It speaks of the joy of discovery. Let me wrap, wrap it for you. She took it back and rolled it into a tight cylindrical form and tied it with a string. Indy took it, touched his forehead with one end and bowed. Thank you, madame. One more question. If the cistern is below us, how do you get there? Oh, that's easy. You take the stairway by the kitchen, but you can't go there tonight. Come back in the morning. I'll take you there and show you the kitchen too. I've already seen it. Thank you again. He stuffed the rolled up rug into his leather case next to his whip. Search high and low, spring of life, the joy of discovery. Maybe he was onto something. And he thought as he spotted Voller in the crowd again. Then again, maybe what he took as clues had nothing to do with his search. The cook was just sprouting off a cliché about a hunt for a lost object. The eunuch spilled a few final hopeful words about renewed life. But then he remembered how Cossack had described the clues. They were the kind that appeared to the seeker, not something contrived. With the hope that he was on the right trail, he approached Voller. The Nazi archaeologist offered his hand, but Indy just crossed his arms, refusing to participate in Voller's ruse. Good to see you, Jonesy. Enjoying the party? Let's skip the small talk. Voller chuckled, glanced up and down. You're looking quite dapper, though a bit disheveled, and what's in your case there? Let me guess. A whip, no doubt. Indy leaned closer to him. 
I may wrap it around your throat in a minute if you don't tell me where Maggie is. Has your girlfriend taken leave? Sorry to hear that. I'll ask you one more time. Where is she? I guess you've lost your sense of humor, Jones. I tell it to you straight. If you want to see Maggie O'Malley alive again, get the shepherd and bring it to me. Do it before the party ends. It's getting late. Indy realized there was little he could do to Voller at the moment to force him to give up Maggie. If he wanted to save her, he had to act on his conclusions and hope he was right. Okay, Magnus, I'll play your game. Let's play fair. Nobody follows me. I'll get the shepherd without any help from you or your Gestapo colleagues. Just back off. Voller raised his hand. Fine, you're on your own. But remember what I said. If you want to see her alive again, yeah, I get it. And if you don't come through on your side, I'll destroy the shepherd so you can't use it. With that, Indy disappeared into the crowd. Considering he didn't know what it was, the comment was a bluff at best, but Voller seemed to buy it. He also apparently thought Gazak had told Indy the whereabouts of the shepherd and that the the only reason Indy hadn't recovered it was because of the Gestapo agents on his trail. Indy saw a server heading back to the kitchen, so he quickly picked up a train from a table and followed him. The server, like Indy, wore a white coat. Indy kept his head down, and no one seemed to pay any attention to him as he propelled himself down the service corridor. As soon as the server pushed through the swinging door into the kitchen, Indy set his tray down and continued down the hallway until he came to a door. He immediately realized that the lock had been broken. Maybe Voller's agents were already down there searching. He moved cautiously down the dimly lit stairs, stepping lightly on his toes so as not to draw any attention in his way. When he reached the landing, he saw a body of placid water and several columns rising from it, bracing the palace floor. He heard a muffled sound, turned to his right, and saw something that didn't make sense. A man in a Gestapo uniform was gagged and tied to one of the pillars. What the hell was going on? He stepped forward and reached for the gag. Leave it. He spun around at the sound of the voice and smiled. Maggie, I thought you were the captive. I was, but that tide has turned. He didn't know I was a trained agent in my own right. He stepped over to her, hugged her. I'll have to watch out for you so I don't end up strapped to a column. She pushed away from him. Indy, I think I know where the chamber of the shepherd is. Indy turned to the dark waters. Where? Kingston said it was under pressure. It's underwater. Lots of pressure, Maggie said. Yeah, it makes sense. How did you find me? She asked. It was an accident. I heard about the cistern down here and figured out the same thing you did. I just didn't know that you and this guy would be down here waiting for me. It's all working out then, she said. And he stared into the dark waters. Uh, we haven't found the shepherd yet. No, but I came across something interesting. Come see. She moved along the rim of the cistern, edging her way around a couple of columns until she stopped and pointed at a huge spool of cable. Indy followed the cable to the cistern. The water was black, making it impossible to see into the depths. Indy leaned over, tugged on the cable and grunted. He brushed off his hands. It's attached to something down there. Even if I dove down there, I wouldn't be able to see anything. Take a look at this, Indy. 
A gas-powered motor was connected to the rear of the spool of cable. Maggie flipped the switch. At first it seemed nothing happened. Then they both turned their gaze back to the water, noticing a subtle change on the surface. They moved closer, peered down, an electric light beam from far below the surface. Good job. Now I've got a good reason to take a closer look. Indy stripped off his soiled white coat, set it down next to his leather case, and slipped off his shoes. He smiled, pulled off the bow tie. Don't think I'll need this down there. Maggie looked worried. It looks awful deep. What do you think is down there? I'll find out. Be careful, Indy. I don't want to lose you. I'm flattered, and don't go wandering off. I don't want to lose you again, either. Suddenly, an image of a young woman flashed before his mind's eye. He'd been blocking it, not wanting to dredge up the sad memory. But now he realized that Maggie reminded him of another strong-willed British redhead, Deirdre, who he'd lost in the Amazon 14 years ago. Are you okay, she asked. He forced a smile. Fine. Be back in a couple of minutes. He took several deep breaths. Then another held it and dove into the black waters and down towards the light. It all came together for Magnus Voller in a searing flash of insight that felt as if someone had poured a bucket of ice water over his head. He was about to join a toast with several European diplomats calling for better cooperation among their countries when he suddenly understood the meaning of Kingston's cryptic message. He realized his strategy to let Jones get the shepherd was about to backfire. The artifact, that's what it was, was hidden in the cistern, the same place where he'd hidden Maggie O'Malley. He'd sent his younger brother, Finn, down to relieve the guard half an hour ago. Finn was reliable, dedicated, but he was no match for Jones and his damn whip. He suddenly pictured his disaster in the making. He threw his drink on the floor, smashing the glass against the marble. Just as everyone raised their glasses, he pushed through the gathering, knocked over an elderly Swiss diplomat, shouted for his men. Cursing Jones, he rushed through the crowd and dashed for the stairway to the cistern. Eighteen, the shepherd's chamber. As Indy approached the source of the light, he estimated his depth at 40 feet. The light seemed to be emanating from inside a sphere about five feet in diameter that was fixed on a platform. He circled around it and recognized it as a bathosphere. He remembered Kingston talking about his cousin, California, who was building the first submergible sphere. The professor had been excited about its potential use in underwater archaeology, and he even mentioned the Black Sea and the Straits of Bosphorus as potential sites. For years, Indy never heard any more about it. Then, in 1934, he read that Kingston's cousin and another man had taken the sphere to a depth of more than 3,000 feet. By then, Kingston was already missing. He swam past the hatch on the top and over to the porthole on the side. He remembered reading that the porthole was made of quartz, which could withstand enormous pressure and was the strongest known transparent material. He peered through it and could see a panel of instruments, a bench, and on the bench was a metal box. His lungs were about to burst and he desperately needed to get to the surface. He took one more look, squinted, trying to read what was scrawled on the surface of the box. He could only read the first four letters, 
S-H-E-P, ship. His lungs screaming, he kicked up. As he burst through the sphere, he sucked in air. He had located the shepherd. Maggie, I found it. But as he looked up, a chill raced through him. Magnus Fuller sneered down at him. Good work, Jones. I'm glad you found it. The engine on the cable spool fired to life. Ja, ja, one of the agents shouted, then shifted the gears. The cable tense groaned, and the bathosphere started to rise from the floor of the cistern. The sphere popped to the surface. The engine pulling the cable was turned off, and two of his men dragged the sphere over the lip of the cistern. Everything was coming together, Voller thought, keeping his Smith & Wesson 38 aimed at Jones. The wayward American archaeologist had led him to the shepherd, and now Jones could only watch as he recovered the shepherd from the depth. Maggie O'Malley was still missing, but his men would find her soon enough. Watch him, Voller snapped at one of the agents as he moved over to the sphere and peered through the hatch. He saw the box that Jones had seen. Now he was excited about the discovery. He wondered what it could be that would lead him to the staff of Moses. A map, perhaps? Or maybe a letter with all the information he needed. Would it be that simple? He hoped so. He leaned over the top of the sphere and cranked the wheel to the left. It didn't budge. He tried again, and this time it moved half an inch. He didn't want to call for help. He applied more force, and the seal on the hatch slowly gave way. He spun it with one hand smiling, then pulled it open. He didn't w want to allow anyone else access to the sphere, at least not before he entered it. He turned to Jones. Isn't it interesting that we started with a small jade sphere, and now I'm going inside a large sphere for the same purpose. It's a bathosphere, in case you're not up on marine archaeology, and he shot back. I am aware of the subfield, he said with a laugh, but the artifact I'm interested in right now is inside the sphere, not on the ocean floor. With that, Voller climbed onto the top of the sphere and lowered himself inside. Indy wasn't feeling good about the situation. He'd done everything he could, and look what had come of it. He was held captive by the Nazis, caught without even a fight, and Voller was about to claim the shepherd. His attention was diverted as the young Gestapo agent that Maggie had tied to the column reappeared with Maggie in tow. A rope was bound tightly around her upper body. Put them together. It'll be easier to watch them, one of the agent said to the younger blonde who looked contrite. Are you all right? Indy asked as he pulled his clothes back on and saw his carrying case beneath the clothes. She nodded. Sorry I couldn't do anything to warn you. She stared at the bathosphere as Voller climbed out. So that's the chamber. Yeah, and he's got the shepherd. Voller clutched the metal box and congratulated the agent who'd caught Maggie. Indy noticed a strong facial resemblance. The same high cheekbones and square jaw and guessed they were related. Welcome back, Miss O'Malley. You're here right in time to see me lay claim to the shepherd. Fuller turned his attention back to the box. He examined it closely, frowning, shaking his head, obviously puzzled. No seams, no latches. He shook it, but something inside. Indy knew, without knowing why, that he could open it. On impulse, he blurted, You can't open it, but I can. Fuller laughed nervously, 
clutching the box protectively. If I can't open it, then you can't either. And he didn't answer. He wished he hadn't said anything. Fuller continued examining the metal box. He let a couple of his men, including the one who had caught Maggie, handle it. After a few minutes, Fuller turned to him. All right, Jones, you said you could open it, so do it. He held out the box, but Indy didn't take it. I said open it. I want to see you do it. He wished he'd kept his mouth shut, but maybe he could destroy the shepherd like he'd done with the jade sphere. Indy took the box. Fuller turned to one of the agents. If he tries anything, shoot him. Indy sat down, resting the box on top of his carrying case. He ran his fingers over the box, but couldn't feel any seams. Immediately, the box started getting warmer and warmer, as if his touch had triggered something in the metal. Within seconds, his hand fell as if it was glowing, but it didn't hurt. He wasn't getting burned from the hot metal. He imagined that the material was malleable and he could reach right through to the shepherd. Suddenly, that was what happened. His hand appeared to sink into the box. He heard a gas muttering. He felt the shepherd, but he knew that he wasn't supposed to take it out. His hand reached through the box and into his leather case. His fingers touched the Turkish rug that was rolled up like a scroll. He grasped it, lifted it up through the box and out the top. As he held it up, Fuller immediately snatched it from his hands, unraveled it. What is this, a rug? How is that going to lead me to the staff? I guess you don't know about Turkish rugs, Magnus. They each tell a story. Fuller examined the rug, shook his head. It's just a dragon. Where's the story? You have to find an expert to interpret it. You better not be lying. You saw me take the scroll out of the box. I'm not sure what I saw. I don't trust you any more than you trust me, Jones. But I'll find someone here who knows about rugs. Meanwhile, climb into that bath of here, both of you. You're going down. Indy felt the cold muzzle of a revolver pressed against the back of his head and knew they didn't have any choice. Okay, we'll go. But do me a favor, Magnus. Keep that engine running when we get to the bottom or we'll suffocate. It's pumping air. Of course, Jones. After all, we may need to talk to you again. Bowler stuck the rolled-up rug under his armpit like a rider with a crop. He felt victorious, but incomplete. He was anxious to find the staff, but to do so, he needed to translate the rug. He turned to his younger brother, who was standing by the motor as the bathophere sank. Finn, listen closely. As soon as they touch bottom, turn off the engine. Do not turn it back on. You made one mistake today, talking to the woman. Don't make another. Finn straightened up. But you promised him you would keep it on so they could breathe. Buller waved a hand. That was only to get them to cooperate. Psychology, Finn. You give people a sense that they're getting something for going along with you. He started to leave, but stopped and turned to his younger brother again and spoke sternly. Remember, do not give Jones a chance to escape and cause more trouble. And stay here until I get back. Finn nodded, but looked unhappy. Fuller shook his head and hurried away. Finn was too damn soft. He didn't have what it took to be a leader. He motioned to a, another agent as he reached the stairs. Watch Finn. Make sure he turns off the engine. 
If he doesn't, you do it. Yes, sir. Maggie started feeling claustrophobic before the bats of here settled on the floor of the cistern. Oh, I don't trust you, Mindy. He's full of blarney. If he finds out where the staff is, what's to keep him from just leaving us down here? Yeah, we have a definite trust issue here. My guess is that if he found out where the staff was located, he would definitely forget about us. Then bloody hell, what are we doing down here? Don't worry, the rug isn't the shepherd. He won't find directions to the staff on it, no matter how many experts he consults. Maggie looked mystified. Then where is the staff? It's right here, in the box. He was stupid enough to let me keep it after being so possessive of it. You're joking with me. How did you do it? It looked like you reached right into the box. I suppose it did look like that. Trade secret. Sorry. No sense trying to explain, he thought, especially when he didn't have any good explanation. So what's in the bleeding box? No time for that now, Indy said, looking up at the hatch. Indy, there's water leaking from the hatch. We're going to drown. I see that. The light went out, plunging them into darkness. Now I don't see anything. What are we going to do? She tried not to sound panicked, even though she was. The sound of leaking water filled her head. The light flickered back on. Sorry, I did that, Indy said. He reached for a lever. I think I can take this bathtub back to the surface as long as that engine keeps running. Then do it. The water's over my calves. It's rising fast. Indy pulled back on the lever. She felt the cable tense, and the bath of fear started back up. Thank God. Can you make it go faster? It's only got one speed. But Maggie's relief was short-lived. Suddenly, the light went out. The sphere shuddered, stopped rising, and swung slowly through the dark waters. Are you playing tricks on me again? Afraid not. They shut off the damn engine. We're dead in the water, Maggie. Great. Are we going to suffocate or drown? Probably drown, but let's look for another option. I can't see my bloody nose, much less any option. She thought of her mother and remembered her telling Maggie long ago about the wee folk. They can always help you out of a fix, Maggie dear. Just call on them. Yeah, Mom, where are they? I'm in a fix and I need help. We folk, anyone help? Nineteen, Rampage. The water rose to Indy's knees, quickly flooding the underwater vessel. He clutched the metal box to his chest. If it held any more magic, he could use it now. He squeezed his eyes shut. Turn the engine back on. Turn it on. Nothing happened. Then he realized that, of course, there was another option. He placed the box between his knees, reached up and grabbed the wheel on the hatch. Get ready. I'm opening the hatch. At first, the wheel didn't budge. He grunted, tried again. It moved a few inches and water surged into the bathosphere, rising quickly to his chest, his neck, rising too fast. He shouted, hold your breath, Maggie. The water filled the sphere, bearing them. But the wheel turned easily now. He pushed it up, grabbed the box, and kicked his way up through the hatch. He tucked the box under, beneath his belt, turned around, reached back, and found Maggie's hand. He pulled her out, and they swam for the surface. Indy slowly ascended and touched a finger to Maggie's lips. For the second time in less than an hour, he popped to the surface of the cistern, this time without a splash or a gasp. Maggie eased up next to him. They both ducked behind a nearby pillar. 
silently gulping air. After catching his breath, he peered around the column and passed the rim of the cistern. He pointed toward one of the Nazis, then motioned for Maggie to swim underwater along the edge of the cistern. They ducked below the surface and swam about 30 yards before they came up for air. After checking the deck area, they quietly climbed out. I think there are two of them. Let's see if we can sneak past them and get out of here. They moved cautiously forward, keeping an eye out for the Gestapo agents. As they neared the massive spool of cable, Indy motioned for Maggie to wait, then crept forward. He reached for his shoes, coat, and leather case. He scooped them up, but one of his shoes clattered to the floor. Vazvar das, one of them said. Just a shoe, Indy thought. Don't worry about it, fellow. But one of the agents walked over and stared at the shoe. He looked up startled as he realized the rest of Indy's gear was missing. Indy stepped out from behind a nearby column, case in hand, coat flung over his shoulder. Well, I didn't want to go back to the party in bare feet. Before the agent could react, Indy lashed the whip around his lower legs and jerked his feet out from under him. Indy snatched his gun from his outstretched hand, then pulled the man to his feet. He wrapped his arms around the agent's neck and pushed him forward towards his partner, holding him up as a shield. Drop your gun, now. The gun clattered to the concrete. The man stepped out, his arms raised, and Indy recognized the agent that Maggie had tied up. The Nazi in Indy's grasp suddenly started to struggle, elbowing Indy in the side. The other one lunged at Indy, grabbed his wrist, and tried to twist the gun from his hand. Maggie rushed over, scooped up the other gun, then slammed it against the head of the young agent just as he pried the gun from Indy's hand. The other agent broke free, spun around and tackled Indy. They rolled over and over until Indy's head hung over the edge of the cistern. He pressed his thumbs into Indy's throat, gritting his teeth, squeezing Indy's neck as if it were, he were wringing out a sponge. Indy felt his face turning red. He gagged, his arms flopped uselessly. Maggie rushed forward, but the agent was ready for her. He grabbed her arm and tossed her over his head and into the cistern. The distraction gave Indy time to catch his breath and recover. That was uncalled for, he said, and punched the agent in the jaw. The man fell back, and Indy wrapped his legs around the Nazi's neck. He squeezed and twisted and knocked the man's head against the floor. His body went still. Indy rolled onto his knees and grabbed Maggie's hand as she reached the side of the cistern. Maggie coughed a couple of times, then went right to work. She found the same rope that had bound her to the post, tied the right hand of one agent to the left hand of the other. Then she and Indy dragged them to the column. She finished the job by tying the other hands of the two men behind the column while Indy found his other shoe and stuck the metal box into his leather case. Footfalls on the stairs. Fuller appeared, his face strawberry red with rage, and behind him were at least six more agents. Who keeps letting these guys in the door? And he growled. He grabbed Maggie's arm and they scrambled away, moving deeply into the cistern. No doubt some palace official was sympathetic to the Nazi cause. And he looked back and realized that Voller hadn't seen them. They ducked behind a column. The Nazi archaeologist hovered over the pair of bound agents, slapped one of them across the face and spat something in German. Nice guy. Come on, and he whispered. They darted from pillar to pillar. I don't see any way out. They might have us trapped after those two wake up and start talking. Over there, she pointed. What's that? A steel ladder angled up the wall and led to a trap door. They ran for it. 
Indy climbed up, stuffed the metal box under his belt, then pushed out the center where two heavy steel plates met. Nothing happened. It felt as if a ton of concrete blocks covered the double trap door. He tried again, shook his head. Don't think this is going to work. A shout echoed through the cistern. Boots pounded the floor. Here they come, Maggie hissed. Let me help. She crawled up the ladder next to him, standing on the same step. He liked her closeness. If uh, they were in such a dire situation, he would favor lingering, even on a ladder. She reached up and pushed before he had a chance to help, and the trapdoor lifted several inches. Hey, how did you do that? He shoved hard, and this time the door flipped open. Nothing to it, she said with a laugh, scrambled upward. As she stuck her head through the doorway, she let out a short, startled scream. Then he smelled something sour and pungent. What is it? What's going on? You are not going to bloody believe it. She climbed slowly up. He followed, and the smell grew stronger. Bits of hay fluttered down. Go slowly, Andy. They were in a huge cage, and they weren't alone. A full-grown African elephant stood in the corner watching them. I think he was standing on the door a minute ago. Indy worked his way over to the gate, unlatched it, but the elephant immediately moved forward, and Indy had to jump out of the way, barely avoiding a swinging tusk. To his surprise, the elephant lowered to its forearms and knees. I think he wants to give us a ride, Maggie said. Why not? They both climbed on, and when Indy tapped his heels into the elephant's sides, it stood up and pushed through the gate. A couple of chimpanzees made high-pitched sounds from a cage across from the elephants. A white Bengal tiger paced in a third cage. We must be in the palace zoo, Indy said. Good guess, she answered, wrapping her arm around Indy's waist. The elephant seemed to know where it was going. As long as it was away from Fuller and his gang, that was fine with Indy. Where's the box? Maggie asked. Indy raised his right hand, showing her the leather case. Suddenly the elephant bolted raising straight for a huge gate. Indy held tight. Maggie folded around him, clinging to him as the elephant crashed through the gate and kept going. When Indy lifted his head, they were rampaging across the parking lot. The big bull elephant crushed the hoods of cars as if they were toys. The bees seemed confused by the cars as if they were competitors for the affection of a female suitor. He seemed intent on stomping over every vehicle in sight. A shotgun rang out, then another. Fuller and his Nazi crew raced across the lot. The shotguns only enraged the elephant. It turned and hurtled headlong toward Voller, who had ducked behind the black limousine displaying swastika flags. The elephant stomped across the hood, smashed the windshield, and kept going. Voller and the agent scattered. The beast charged through the entrance to the lot and away from the palace and into the narrow streets of Istanbul. It smashed carts, destroyed storefronts, crushed stands of fruit and vegetables, sheared off awnings. Hang on, Indy shouted as the elephant's trunk tossed a bicycle over its shoulder. Groceries spilled from the basket, pelting them with pieces of fruit, bread, and rice. I think we're headed for the Spice Bazaar, Maggie shouted. I don't need any nutmeg, Indy yelled. He looked back and saw the smashed limousine careening around a corner, the windshield completely gone. A, a Gestapo agent leaned out of the passenger window and started firing at them. You okay, Indy asked. Watch out. Indy glimpsed a banner stretching across the street 
coming his way. He ducked and felt it ripple over his back. The elephant veered down a side street and headed towards a railroad crossing. Oh no, and he groaned as he spotted a train steaming down the tracks. More shots were fired and the elephant picked up speed, pounding towards the train. The engine horn blew just as the big bull raced, raised its trunk, bellowed and continued on a collision course. The headlights of the train illuminated the beast and its passengers. And he saw the startled engineer hit the brakes as the elephant barreled directly in the train's path. Then they were across and heading toward the train station. The elephant climbed to the station platform, slowed to a walk, then stopped as if it were waiting for a train. Let's change vehicles, Indy said, sliding down to the platform. They exchanged a look, nodded, and ran for the train that was moving slowly now. Maggie leaped first, grabbed a railing to the door of a car, and swung onto the lower step. Indy chased her, leaped, caught the railing, and landed next to her. We made it, he said. Goodbye, Istanbul, Maggie answered as they slumped onto a seat and watched the city moving past them as the train picked up speed again. But it wasn't long before Maggie turned to Indy. So, can you open the box now? I want to see this shepherd that nearly got us killed half a dozen times. He smiled, reached into his leather case, and took out the metal box. To his surprise, it now looked like a normal container with seams, a cover, and a latch. No magic required. Baffled, he carefully lifted the cover, and they stared into the box at another case. Well, open it, Maggie urged. He reached inside the box, lifted the cover to the smaller case. That's it, Maggie said. A conductor moved along the aisle in their direction, and Indy shut the case and the box. Guess so. Magnus Voller finally caught up to the elephant. Istanbul police officers and a couple of zookeepers were attempting to calm it down, but they seemed more excited than the elephant at the moment. Voller straightened his coat, ran a hand through his blonde hair. Officer, did you see what happened to the couple who were on the back of the elephant? There was someone on his back. One of the zookeepers overheard Voller and stepped closer. Believe me, sir, no one could ride on this elephant's back. He would throw them off and trample them to death. Voller walked away. Finn rushed up to him. We've checked everywhere. They're not here. I can see that, he snapped. If they were here, you'd probably be tied up to a post. Maybe it didn't matter, Voller thought. Maybe he didn't need the shepherd, whatever it was. After all, he had a spy in the palace, a woman who dealt with the public. She was also the mistress of the curator, and although she hadn't known about the location of the shepherd's chamber, she was confident she could find out whatever Kingston had told Mustafa Kazak about the location of the Staff of Moses. Thanks for joining The Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. 
And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical.